This is The Guardian. I'm Gabrielle Jackson, coming to you from Gadigal land. And this is The Full Story, Newsroom Edition, where Guardian Australia's editors discuss the news of the week. The fire front came fast. We're in big trouble. We have multiple units in around the Murrah Hall. If we don't get out very shortly, they will not be getting out at all. Fire edging closer, homes and lives under threat. We need to get people out of Birmingham. Over the course of just 24 hours, several communities in Australia have fled their homes as bushfires threaten their properties, only to return home to heavy rain and the threat of floods. More than 180 millimetres of rain drenched parts of Gippsland overnight. This is a real developing situation uh, here in large parts of Victoria. This now frequent threat comes as extreme heat sweeps the globe. It is going to be the most intense heat wave in the last decade. 34 degrees in Latvia, over 30 degrees in Hungary and France. July 2023 is on track to be even hotter than June, which has been recorded as the hottest month ever on Earth, according to meteorologists. In the words of one climate scientist, average global temperatures in September were absolutely gobsmackingly bananas. But there is hope. A new report says we have the time and the technology to limit the damage done by climate change. But we need to act now. Today, I'm talking to Editor-in-Chief Lenore Taylor and Head of Newsroom Mike Tisha about why we don't have time for politics when it comes to the climate crisis. It's Friday, the 6th of October. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Good morning, Lenore. Morning, Gabs. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. Lenore, it seems like we have to talk about the climate crisis again. Yep, I think we do. Yeah, look, sometimes news isn't brand new. Sometimes news is the thing that just keeps on happening and in this case keeps on getting worse. And, you know, I feel like sometimes there's a a real pull, a real inclination to just slide past these stories because it's really so terrifying and people might not want to read them but I feel like we need to keep talking about them and I hope our listeners will keep listening to them because it's incredibly important and also because there's still reason for hope. So, yeah, we do need to talk about climate. We'll get to the hope, but, Mike, give us a flavour of what has happened around Australia this week. I mean, normally you'd call it weather, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but we've had three years of La Nina, lots of rain, cooler summers, and now we're heading into El Nino drier, hotter summers, conditions, which obviously means bushfires and everyone that was very much expected, but we are only in the first week of October. It's still very much spring. I don't think anyone quite expected that we would be thinking about whether to send reporters to bushfires already, but we are. They are particularly on the New South Wales south coast. It's quite terrifying, particularly for the people who live there, obviously, but I think also for people who just remember that 
time and how bad it can be um, and how early in the season it is. At the same time, there are also floods in parts of northeast Victoria. It feels like every day there's a new temperature record broken and, yeah, all those things put together kind of make you think about not about weather but about climate. Mm. Lenore, you've been reporting on the climate crisis for 30 years. Was this weather unexpected? I think that climate scientists have been predicting what would happen when global heating was overlaid on normal weather patterns, and that certainly is happening. But I think it's happening in ways that climate scientists are finding surprising and frightening in lots of different ways. So Antarctic scientists are really frightened at the sea temperatures and Antarctic sea ice loss. They're saying that's just completely off the charts. Our environment editor, Adam Morton, wrote a column this week quoting a climate scientist, Zeke Hausfather, who said that in his professional opinion as a climate scientist, what we were seeing was absolutely gobsmackingly bananas. He said it's hard to overstate just how exceptionally high global temperatures are at the moment. So, yes, this was predicted, but it's happening in ways that are faster or not quite as was predicted. And I think climate scientists are really, really concerned. And we have talked briefly, Mike, about what's been happening in Europe, but it's still hot there too. They've had an exceptionally hot summer in parts of Europe, in the south particularly, lots of bushfires across Greece, Spain, Portugal, and um, again, a similar story, record-breaking temperatures and similar concerns. But at the same time, and we'll get on to policy I'm here, I'm sure, but at the same time in the e- across the EU and particularly in the UK, as we've seen recently, there have been quite strong pushbacks against previously promised environmental policies in various areas. I mean, the UK is a particularly stark example, but it's not by far the, not the only country where this is going on. So there's this massive disconnect between what's happening on the ground and the actual policies that are being uh, at least talked about in some countries uh, that, uh, you know, have we gone too far already? (laughs) It's infuriating. I guess on the slightly more hopeful note, we should be clear that in the US under the Biden administration, they have pumped an enormous amount of money into the oddly named Inflation Reduction Act or even more oddly acronymed IRA. A lot of that money is going towards technology that will have a mitigating impact on the climate crisis and that's drawing a lot of investment in those areas like you know solar technology and so on away from other countries. Of course, we can't guarantee that that administration will remain in power after the next US presidential election, but for the moment at least the US, or oddly, sort of anomalous in recent history, but the US is kind of leading the way on actual action uh, on emissions. Lenore, the message from scientists is clear. The time for action is now. Is Australia listening? Well, I think most Australians who are concerned about global heating would have been encouraged by the last election result, the election of Labor, the success of the Teals and the Greens. The makeup of the parliament seemed to sort of suggest that the climate wars were over and that we would sort of stop being a global laggard. And to an extent, that did happen. The main thing the new government did was give teeth to a former coalition government policy called the Safeguards Mechanism, which is meant to bring emissions down in sort of industrial processes and factories and the like. And they're doing other things. They've got an EV policy in the pipeline. They're just promised to rejoin the Global Climate Finance Fund. They are doing some things. But I think really progress is clearly still too slow. There was a 
story this week about how there were a number of factories that could continue to increase their emissions under this safeguards mechanism and still get money from the government, for instance. The government's still approving new coal mines or expansions of coal mines. Now, you know, at least one of them was a metallurgical coal mine that's used by the steel industry. It was only going to operate for five years. But really, the problem is that we're at a point where there is no more leeway and the pressure from anyone looking at the climate science is that the government should be doing more and at the moment they're, you know, taking it fairly slowly and steadily. And you can understand from the government's point of view, they don't want to reignite the climate wars. They want to, you know, they want to manage this in a way where they take public opinion with them. And we all know public opinion has been quite sort of twisted on this in Australia over time. And in, I guess, in an interview with Catherine Murphy in our politics podcast, Anthony Albanese did say that they might be doing more. But I guess at the moment there is this dissonance, this disconnect between how much we need to do and how quickly they're doing things in Australia. I think that's absolutely fair. Mm. So it feels like there are a number of areas where at least it feels like there's a lack of urgency in their policy development, for example, on EVs. They promised a new policy on fuel standards, which will promote the uptake of EVs. That hasn't happened yet. On changes to the main environmental laws, which they are sort of leaning on in improving new coal mines, of which there have been several this year already, which will continue to produce coal for decades. They have said, well, we can't do anything to stop them because it's you know we're we're bound by the environmental law, but they have promised to change those environmental laws that many people have been calling for them to be reformed so that they take much more account of the climate impacts of of such developments. But that's all happening, you know, maybe next year. Well, they've said it will happen next year, but that all feels you know a bit all down the track. Same with things like getting households off gas. Federal government has said we're not going to do anything to ban new gas in new developments, so we'll leave that all up to state and territory governments in the immediate term. It feels like if that's what they're afraid of, then, you know, they need to be a bit less... An induction is better anyway. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I guess it sort of boils down to politics takes time, we don't have time. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I mean, not yeah. In lots of other areas, policy areas, you might you say that, that approach yeah. is that exactly. cautious approach. Bring people along with you. Obviously, that makes sense. In in some ways, you can make a good political argument for that. But this is demands more urgency. You know, and there are there are political pressures. You know, fuel prices are really high at the moment, and you know, politicians can make hay with that. Create fear in the community. We know the coalition is latest delaying tactic is to talk about small modular nuclear reactors. Whatever other problems there are with them, like they're more expensive, they take ten years to build. We don't have ten years, so there are political pressures, but they're not insurmountable political pressures. And on fuel prices, problem is we're at the mercy of foreign producers apparently randomly fluctuating oil price. If people were driving more electric vehicles, they would they would not be subject to that. That was obviously, you know, that's easier said than done. People have to outlay the investment to get one and they're very expensive at the moment. But you'd hope that would be a driver to start to bring down their prices and get more people into them so that we're no longer subject to these international pressures from often quite unsavoury regimes that produce the world's oil. That sounds a bit grim, Lenore. Is there room for hope? I think yes, yes, I think there is. So 
I think there is still time to course correct globally and in Australia. I think Michael Mann, who's the sort of US climate scientist who shot to fame because of the uh, hockey stick graph, has written a new book called Our Fragile Moment. And in a way, he says it's partly to just mitigate against that feeling of climate doomism. And his thesis is that if we can keep warming below 1.5 degrees, we can preserve this fragile moment. If we go beyond three degrees, we can't. We're somewhere in between there now. So he says it's a question of how bad we're willing to let it get. 1.5 degrees is already really bad. Three degrees is potentially civilization ending bad. So we're sort of at the point where stuff has to start happening. Adam Morton wrote this week about the latest International Energy Agency report, which says that technology, so all the technologies that we have in the hand already are being rolled out at a record pace and in line with what we need to get to net zero emissions by 2050, which is terrific. And as a result, they conclude we don't need any new or extended coal mines we're good. We, we've got the technology to do this. So that could bolster an argument in Australia for not expanding coal mines. And I think, you know, I think there is a, an appetite in the federal government to do more. So I think we're really at the inflection point, which is precisely why I think we have to keep talking about this right now. Yeah. I mean, the fact that those technologies exist is one thing, which obviously that's of the first part of the argument you need to make. We've seen how they've run into difficulties, particularly on transmission lines where yeah. that, are, that are meant to... The rollout is tough. ...rewire yeah. the nation, in quotes, to account for more renewable energy in the system. Um, and that is, that is a difficult political problem, which there's no getting around that. But as I said, they were elected. The whole parliament was elected on this kind of... This is the moment that the electorate's saying we want to take environmentalism seriously, the climate crisis seriously. Feels like they have to seize the day and like run with that momentum. Mm-hmm. Not like we ran a story in August reporting on Ken Henry, the former Treasury Secretary, who's now the chair of the Australian Climate and Biodiversity Foundation, who reported specifically on the environmental laws in New South Wales and how they're inadequate for the task. But in commenting on that, on his review of those laws, he said, it feels like our politicians have been driven into a place where they appear to be huddled in the corner, too afraid to do anything sensible to address the mighty challenges. And that kind of is what it feels like well, generally. you know, to use a different metaphor, it feels like we're sitting on the railway track. We can see the train coming down the track. It's getting closer and closer. We could get off the track and we're just choosing not to do it. Next, the world's smallest mountain and the world's longest cab ride. Hey, Laura Murphy-Oates here. At Guardian Australia, we want to make sure you're getting the news that matters in 2023. Our morning mail and afternoon update newsletters are short and capture the most important headlines of the day. If that sounds good, you can subscribe for free right now by visiting the Guardian homepage, searching Guardian Australia newsletters, or just downloading our app and you'll get daily notifications. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. 
Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Now we come to what we can't get out of our head. Lenore, what's stuck in your mind this week? Oh, for me this week, it was a story from our rural editor, Gabrielle Chan, who lives on a farm in Harden in Western New South Wales and needed to get from Harden to Melbourne and got to the train station 20 minutes early to discover that the train had left the station half an hour early. And uh, when she discovered this, the uh, train operator offered and in fact got her a cab for the nearly 600 kilometre journey. It took six and a half hours. It cost $2,095. I mean, this is the equivalent of catching a cab from Amsterdam to Berlin. So I guess admirable customer service from the train company, not sure it's a great business model. But Gabby got to Melbourne on time. Uh, Mike, can you top that? That was a pretty extraordinary story. I don't think I can top it, but mine was also from our rural network, from one of our contributors, uh, Tim McGlone, who wrote this week about what we called the toughest race at the world's smallest mountain. And I felt like this story had absolutely everything you want in a in any story, really. It's like the world's smallest mountain. <laughs> what is that? Is it a hill so or a mountain? In, no, no, it's, it's definitely, definitely a mountain. mountain. Okay. <laughs> this is in the Victorian town of Witchproof, I hope I'm saying that correctly, where in the 1980s, so 1970s and 80s, they had a race up the smallest mountain in the world. It's only 42 metres high, but it's officially a mountain <laughs> with people carrying huge sacks of wheat on their backs. Uh, it's a wheat Why town, are obviously. They ca- oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's in the wheat district. Uh, the men carry 60 kilos of wheat. That is heavy. Back, wow. is that is really heavy. A normal hiking backpack, you know, you wouldn't want to carry more than 20 kilos, I reckon. Mm-hmm. And not the up women, a mountain, um, the even women. the smallest mountain. <laughs> even the smallest The women carry 20 kilos, uh, which is enough. Uh, anyway, they run up the smallest mountain in the world and obviously the winner is the first one to the top. What do you get what if you they- win? Uh, I would have to A bag check of that. Wheat. <laughs> More wheat. <laughs> but, All the wheat. <laughs> um, it looked incredibly awful for the people who did the running, but the, in the, apparently in the 70s and 80s it was became this kind of like somewhat bacchanalian day where everyone got incredibly drunk <laughs> and they've toned that down slightly for the revival. It's more of a family day, but it looked like, I don't know, the story had a lot of, lot of great detail in it and I thoroughly enjoyed it. We'll put links to both those stories on the full story page. Thanks so much for joining us today, Lenore. Thanks, Gab. Thank you, Mike. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much for listening. Full Story, we'll be back with you on Monday. This episode was produced by Miles Herbert and Joe Koning, who also wrote our theme tune. The executive producer is me, Gabrielle Jackson. Have a great weekend. Catch you next week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.